See, I don't think it, it's going to matter if we're ready for change. I think management in a lot of organizations is going to drive this bus. I worry about how the executives will drive the bus, and they might drive it right over all the business continuity planning. Yeah, the change is coming, whether we're ready or not. Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. Now, it's hard to believe this year is getting close to the end. And as business continuity practitioners all over the world are still firmly battling COVID impacts to their businesses, there seems to be enough of a lull for us to begin considering what is ahead for us in the industry. So this week on the podcast, we're holding the first of hopefully several roundtable discussions with some well-known voices within business continuity. With me today, we have Dr. David Linsett and Mark Armour, co-authors of the book Adapted Business Continuity and New Approach. Also joining us is James Green, Director Risk Advisory Services at SAI Global and a prophetic thought leader many of you know. Our goal is simple today, to solve all of business continuity's problems in one hour. But more realistically, we're going to have a discussion that explores how COVID has changed many BC professionals' worldviews, as well as how the industry will need to address various parts of the profession as we go forward. And so we've assembled this peanut gallery today to talk about some of the changes we'll need to make and consider as we move into the next season of our work. As always, we're excited to have you join the podcast this week. You can find out more about the show by visiting our website, failoverpodcast.com, or join our LinkedIn page. All right, let's get on with the show. Well, uh, welcome to the show, everybody. We are excited to have our guests, James Green, David Linsett, and Mark Armour with us today. Uh, so this is what I'm calling, I've, I've, I've put it on the books as the super episode. This is going to involve uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of big uh, names in the industry here. Uh, and we brought everybody together just to really have a conversation about 2020. <laughs> And I know everybody's probably saying boo already about 2020, but we wanted to talk today uh, with these two gentlemen about what's going on uh, and what are some of the things we would do differently if we were if we were in charge, what would we do differently? Well, we're not in charge, but we definitely have some ability to kind of influence and involve each other in the discussion. So let's start there. When we look uh, at 2020, you know, I'm going to start with uh, James. And uh, James, what would be the the one word you would describe 2020 as it relates to business continuity? Okay, not just the nonsensical era we're living in, but when it comes to business continuity, how would you describe the industry this year? Uh, in one word that I can use on the air, uh, I would say chaos. All right. So why, why do you feel that way? I mean, is it uh, something you've seen personally with clients or is it just uh... Well, because I wanted to use two words, but you only <laughs> gave me one word. Uh, so I picked chaos. Uh, two words I would say for the, our industry as a whole, my two words would be missed opportunities. Wow. Okay. All right. Any comments uh, from Mark, David, any thoughts on that? Agree, disagree? It's a lot of missed opportunities. It's tough to argue with that one. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, did the, did the missed opportunities occur this year or in all of our planning and preparedness efforts, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. All right, so David, what about you? What do you think? What's the one word? I'm going to uh, go with uh, consternation, uh, which is an odd one. But 
there's just a lot of sort of shock and disbelief and uncertainty. And I mean, we're all, we all have sort of change fatigue. We're all, we're not sure of really the reality of a lot of the situations and what we ought to do. And one group says you could, should do this. One says you should not do this. Um, so there's just a lot of consternation at a real psychological and corporate uh, organizational level. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely seen in, uh, the way we're we're kind of seeing some of the ramifications, the outcomes of this is that there are there is a lot. I know we, James, we and I have talked about executives and some of the consternation they've shown demonstrated to you. Uh, but let's go to Mark. Mark, what what would you say is your one word? And remember, no cursing is allowed at this. Point. Oh man! Yeah, <laughs> so they're always trying. Twins will kill me. Reduce my vocabulary by <laughs> half. Thank you, James. Uh, one word I would say: outlier. Um, I think, Interesting. I think what James and David said is is accurate, but I think part of that applies to really any event that we're dealing with. COVID is unusual in that we're all experiencing the same thing across the globe, maybe at different times, but we're all really experiencing the same, the same effects. Um, and this is an outlier, both in terms of our experiences and the impacts and effects, but also I think this is going to be maybe a game changer for the business continuity profession, because we, we are learning, I think some of the same lessons we've learned in past events, but now everybody's learning them. So we kind of get an opportunity to, to really see that what we're experiencing is the same as all of our counterparts across the globe. So do you think, uh, and this is out there for all three of you, do, do you think the industry at this point is, is ready for change because of this event? Or has it always been kind of on that precipice? What's different? I'm not going to say ready for change, but I think what I would say is it's primed for change. So at no point in the business kind of profession uh, have we been in a position where I think people are at least willing to accept change and acknowledge that change is necessary. So primed, I think is probably the, even if we're not ready, uh, I think change is probably going to come and I think no better time than now. David, what do you think? Well, I'll go with the uh, half glass empty answer i i don't i don't see it i don't i don't yeah. see a lot of people clamoring for wait that just didn't work we, there's got to have been something better I, there's there's certainly a lot of you know not quite blame but you know blame like you know if only executives would have listened if only i would have had more money if only they would have pulled the document off the shelf and used it but that i think that speaks to the the systemic problems within the industry not not a, 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 a sort of a Band-Aid problem. Um, you know, I see a few people like, hey, that, that didn't work, or I got fired, or I'm a business continuity person and I was never called in to help uh, with our response activities, um, but I'm not seeing sort of that, yeah. that deep search for, look, this is, there's gotta be a better. Yeah, thing. I agree with you. I mean, in, fa in fact, I was just uh, going back through some of uh, the social media postings and stuff that I've been reading off and on over the last few months. And yeah, I, I really haven't seen much. I haven't seen much where, where somebody explicitly said, you know, beyond maybe our voices <laughs> that, Hey, this, you know, we didn't do so great or I didn't do so great. I mean, I, I guess that's the intrinsic nature of, of being, uh, you know, self-reflective. If you're not, you're not going to be able to really be open to that concept that maybe you can done better, but yeah, I haven't noticed it. James, have you noticed that, uh, See, I don't think it, it's going to matter if we're ready for change. I think management in a lot of organizations is going to drive this bus. 
there's a lot of organizations I work to with and talk to that, like I said, we've had management in those discussions for the first time ever. They're not happy <clears throat> with how the response was, even as Mark said, yes, this is an outlier. But now you have a lot of management for the first time realizing, hey, this framework structure program didn't meet my needs and I'm going to change it. So we as business continuity professionals, if we're not ready for that change, we're going to be left behind, I think. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. I think J- James articulated my point better than, better than I did, which is yeah, the change is coming, whether ready or not, <laughs> is irrelevant. I think it's going to be driven. To David's point, I think we need to look at, well, who's, who's speaking? We're, we're hearing from the industry leaders like BCI and DRI and from a lot of a lot of big name consultants. And I, I don't think that there's much incentive for them to, to paint a different picture than the one we've been painting for 20 years. I worry about uh, how the executives will drive the bus and they might drive it right over all the business continuity <laughs> plan. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I suspect that one of the things that we better be prepared for is the thought that, well, look, you know, I spent this money in business continuity. It didn't really help me. They weren't involved in in the response activities. So, you know, look, let's we'll, we'll relegate them to regulatory and compliance. Check the box work so that I can get the regulators off my back. Um, and I'm going to focus more on uh, on crisis management uh, or risk management or or resilience, which gets us in a, a rabbit hole that we probably don't want to go down. But, um, you know, I, I, I worry that, you know, business continuity clearly did not, um, did not provide enough value that enough people are standing up and going, oh, thank goodness uh, we had the BIA to look at because that really helped us during our response. Or, you know, thank goodness we did all those exercises. And you know what? I have heard that from a couple of people. You know, they're like, look, we, we did an exercise that showed us these kinds of things and that really did help us. But, you know, we're, we're just not hearing a lot of this people standing up and going, wow, that was that was a close one. It's a good thing we, we had yeah. the business continuity in place to help. Yeah, well, I have to agree with that. You know, there's one client that, a uh, prospect that uh, we talked to recently recently that they they were saying hey you know we want some help in, with our business continuity program uh, but we don't want to do it in the traditional sense okay and and literally that's all they said they were like i asked them i pressed them a little further like okay well what do you mean you know do you do you want a program with a you know based on a business impact analysis and then a business continuity plan and he's like yeah i really don't see the value in the bia that was is is that quote uh, so, you know, David and Mark are just jumping in their seats right now. <laughs> Do you have a name? A reference, maybe. Uh, I, uh, no, I'm, I'm not giving any references. This is my client. No. Would you, would you like to share the name and phone number of that prospect, Shane? Right. So, no, but the, the, when I dig a little deeper, you know, he, he said, we had basic BIA data from the past. We did not reference it. Um, but beyond the BIA, he's like, I just feel like there needs to be something different. So. You know, I'm I'm seeing that this 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 experience has maybe reflected that because we've now had a couple of different prospects come in and say we want help with a program, but we're not quite sure. We just don't feel like you know we know what the past type of approach is really relevant or or applicable to us. We had to make a lot of things from scratch. You know, so so my point is here. Okay, you know, we're at this place now where we've, we've had a major event across the whole 
globe and we want to say move forward, how would we steer the ship is the question of the day. And then that's what I think these three gentlemen here uh, are going to help with this conversation. So I, we, we discussed and decided that we're going to talk about a couple of key topics that are common to business continuity. And we'll talk about, I think, in the context of will we keep it or not going forward or what would we adapt to it? I mean, how would we change it? So in the vein of that, uh, if we're thinking of that, that prospect uh, as the kind of the decision maker, what would be the benefit? Let's, let's start with governance. You know, that's a huge piece to a lot of business continuity programs. In a lot of ways, it's mandated. Let me hear from you, you three. You know, would you keep governance as a cornerstone part of your future state of business continuity? No. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> that was easy. All right. Next topic. Let's go. <laughs> Mark, why not? Um, we need to figure out what we need to do first. There may be a role for governance, but the governance frameworks that we're all following today provide absolutely no value other than just to provide uh, assurance that you're in compliance with whatever the standards or regulations say, but those standards and regulations are dictating an approach that is not delivering value. James, what do you think? Well, yeah, I think there's a big difference. You know, so when you talk about governance and you go to a company and say, what is your BC governance? To Mark's point, there's a lot of companies who governance for them is just, are we in adherence with standards? Are we in adherence with our own controls? And then other organizations for them, governance is, do we have the right stakeholders at the table? So I certainly wouldn't throw governance out, but I would like to redefine what governance really is, right? For me, it's, it's, not, it's not about we have 487 controls, do we meet them all? That's a compliance and audit issue, and that's, that's completely different for me. Governance is, have we uh, properly determined when what's out of scope? And they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, if you don't even know what's in scope, how do you know what you're building a program for? And you'd be surprised how many people say, well, we've never even thought about that question. Well, is it BC? Is it DR? Is it crisis? Is it incident response? Is it blah, ERM, VRM? Pick your, your acronyms. Uh, so for me, governance, effective governance is do we have the right stakeholders involved and have we determined what's actually in and out of scope? That's what I'd like to see more of. So what, when do people use the governance going? I mean, like if, you, if you're thinking like what's the best case use of, of these documents, I feel like it's, it's, it's a primarily a, a stick that you can wave at, at your, uh, your uh, participants. But beyond that, you know, besides showing an auditor, like I, I just feel like that's, there, there's not a lot of value when it comes to the recovery capabilities of your organizations. Yeah, I think people focus on that because it's it's easy, yeah. right? If, I, if I'm going to tell management that I'm going to have a steering committee on paper that never meets and doesn't make any decisions, and I have risk assessments and BIAs and SOWs and BCPs and run books, though, that's easy to do, right? It's minimal effort. But to your point, Shane, there's a big difference between planning for something and responding and managing. And I think that's where a lot of organizations failed this year, where their plans were so focused on pre-event, right? What FEMA calls left of boom. And the reason they call it boom is because then everything goes out the window. They were never focused on 
on once something happens. And I think that's why your potential client, who I'm hoping, you know, you let that name slip, uh, <laughs> said, because we had, I had another uh, client come to us last week and say the same thing. Like, hey, we want a more robust program. We do not need more plans and documents. We need to know how to act. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, Shane, you, you said it. The word is is capabilities. And for me, the one thing that we could do that would make a tremendous impact is change our thinking from uh, the output of all the deliverables that we're producing so that someone can look at them and go, yes, you are doing a great job to the actual outcomes, right? The capabilities. So, and this has to go up and down and out and over and all the places, right? This has to be for audits and compliance and managers and governance and standards, right? We've been so used to counting things that we can see, right? So, you know, and if I'm a company looking at another company or a merger and acquisition, I want to say, do you have, can you show me the plan for business continuity? Well, that's ridiculous. Nobody has the one plan for business continuity. And if they do, it's a binder and guess where that goes on the shelf and nobody looks at it, right? You've got to look at the capabilities of the organization to actually continue business and or recover its services. And that is going to mean a lot of different things depending on the organization and its culture. And we're not going to be able to just look at a lot of documents. There's, uh, we know of, of departments that are fantastic and can recover with no documents and some that have a hundred documents and could, can't do anything. And so this has to be the one thing that we switch in our thinking is, okay, it's not like the baking a cake. I can't do uh, this BIA document and this risk assessment document and this thing. And this is the this is my big concern with ISO 22301, which is um, suppose I'm worried about a supply chain vendor, a, one of my critical vendors. And I say, look, you know, I'm worried that if something happens to you that you won't be able to get the things that I need. Now, if they pass ISO 22301, should I sleep well at night? Well, it just means that you able to do the deliverables that are outlined in there, but it doesn't show me any confidence that the capabilities are there. Um, and we can talk, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to go too deep anywhere you don't want to go, but let's talk about for a minute the, the audit and regulatory and compliance. If I'm doing enterprise risk management, what I look at are controls, and, and James used the word, and, and that's got a positive and a negative piece, but at least... For controls, it's not just documents, right? It's looking at, are there policies in place? Are there procedures in place? Are there controls in place? Are there uh, automations in place? And these are the kinds of things we're not looking at in business continuity. We're just looking at a handful of, of, of documents we're supposed to produce. Yeah, I mean, I would argue that auditors really don't care about capabilities as much though, right? They're looking to see, do you have the check the box stuff? So like, how do you deal with that? Here's the problem that I see is, is we think of business continuity and what's troubling to me is we're starting to apply the same thinking to resilience. We think of it as a yes, no proposition. You either have it or you don't, which is completely inaccurate. You, it exists in a range. You have some degree of recovery capability and your focus should be on improving it. And from a governance compliance standpoint, what we should be doing is saying, are we collecting and reporting on the right data for leaders to make informed decisions to improve their capabilities in the right way. Instead, compliance and governance has all been driven by this mindset that business continuity either exists in an organization 
or it doesn't. And the only way we can ensure it exists is if we've checked the box on all these deliverables, even though we know and the evidence is there that checking all those boxes does not actually produce the results that we're supposed to be providing in the form of improved response and recovery capability. Sorry, I got on my soapbox. <laughs> so Shane, I'd like to go back to something you said about how auditors don't care because they just, you know, it's just about check the box, but they're auditing against a standard or a document. And we're seeing in other industries, right? So if you look at in the cybersecurity space, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense recently passed their cybersecurity maturity model, which I've been spending a ton of time studying because what else am I going to do uh, in my free time, right? And they're requiring if you want to be a contractor with DOD D's, you know, in 2026, you have to have a level one to five maturity. And what I really like about their models, because there's all kinds of models for our business out there, right, and our profession their model looks at practices and policies. So to move up that scale from level one to two to three to four to five, yes, you have to have all your documents and controls and policies and stuff, but then you also have to demonstrate that you practice those, that you can't, you can't just hit any maturity level just on documents. Right. And I love that idea of measuring you know, like Mark said, looking at the resilience of an organization, do you have documents and stuff and framework as part of it? Can you actually act? Do your employees actually follow them? Do you have practices? And I think that's, you know, something that our profession should consider. Like if we're going to have standards, it's got to look at practical and reality and not just binders. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think that would be helpful. Capa I, I really have started to turn around on the idea of capabilities because there's like, I think that's the biggest uh, weakness that a lot of executives, as we've discussed earlier, really highlighted was like, yeah, we had all these plans, but what did they do for us? And I think that's a big miss with governance too, is not, not only determining what's in scope and out of scope, but where do you want your program to be? Most companies have no idea. Do you need the bare minimum? Do you need world class? Do you need best in class? Do you need somewhere in between? If you don't even know what you're trying to build to, how are companies getting there? Yeah. If they don't even know where they are, how can they even hope to begin to, to build towards an objective? Um, so that's that's why capabilities are so important is it gives you a reference point. Here, here's where we stand. And then if we can understand like, among all of the things that contribute to a specific capability, well, what are the things that have the, that provide the biggest bang for the buck, or where are the, where are the areas where we're most deficient? And then let's let's look at improving in that area. Um, I, for business continuity, I'm not a big fan of the whole maturity model. I think we need to do a better job of figuring this out before we even start to answer the question. Well, what does a mature program look like? But that's just Mark Armour's opinion. Well, that's what we called you for. Let's talk about another area, shifting a little bit, um, which is one of the things that we saw coming out of COVID, and we have seen this other places, we just haven't sort of maybe brought, having it brought to the front often, which are the soft skills, 
right? Uh, one of the concerns that I have with our current practice, and this is like project management of 10 or 20 years ago, or probably lots of other standards and practices, which is that the soft skills play a huge role in your ability, in your capabilities uh, to continue and to recover from disaster. And that is not something I think hardly any business continuity program touches on at all. Um, so you're going to have to explain a little bit more because yeah. look, I am tired of hearing the word soft skill in <laughs> our I'm sorry. I really am. Really? Because right. like, it, there's no definition around it. It's like, okay, well, well what does I'll that mean? You just got to be a leader? Or you... Okay, so, here you go. <laughs> according to uh, some of the research and including McKenzie and company has done a nice job of sort of trying to cull this information and bring it up. Okay, one of the big ones has been uh, active listening. Right. So the leaders, the managers, the directors and the frontline staff who have to listen to their customers. Uh, and this isn't going to go away as we all get increasingly burned out with with COVID. Um, and as you've seen with the Christchurch earthquakes, as we saw with Hurricane Katrina, these uh, these long, longer term disasters, um, you've got to have that active listening to really be able to to hear and take the time to listen to what the other person is saying. The other big one that came out is empathy. Right. Leaders have got to show empathy for what their folks are going through. Um, managers have got to show real empathy for their reports and the frontline staff has to show empathy for the customers. And this is this is not a nice to have touchy feely. Isn't it good to be good to people? This is a bottom line dollars and cents matters because uh, somewhere like 50% of employees seriously consider leaving or do leave after a disaster. Um, because, and there's a number of reasons that they were looking beforehand, but one of the reasons is if they didn't feel appreciated before the disaster, they're sure not going to be feel appreciated after the disaster if you're not taking care of them. And they're like, all right, I'm out. Yeah, that's uh, David. That's so true. Cause one of the things when I work with organizations and I ask them what percentage of your employees are going to show up day one after disaster. And we have that discussion because they always say 80, 90%. And we tell them like, look, if Mark's home doesn't have a roof, he's not coming into work tomorrow. But the second thing I always ask them, and this always gets them mad, is I say, what's the employee morale at your company now? And they always say, why does that matter? And I tell them, if your employee morale is low before a disaster, your turnout after disaster is going to be even lower than you think. Because if I don't like my boss or my job or my company and you know we've been up for 24 hours and the power's out and my kids are home and grandma's here guess what those people aren't going into into work and i think that like you said so shane those soft skills that that empathy is a huge miss in our profession okay so it, it, i agree with that here's my question back to this group a lot of times business continuity professionals seem to be uh, of the mindset that we're behind the curtain pulling the levers and getting things done, whereas we're not the front-facing part of the response or even, you know, in, in the foreground. At least that's that, that's the impression I'm getting with a lot of uh, the professionals I'm seeing. Is that is that what you're sensing? Just, just to clarify, so you're saying what you're hearing from business company professionals um, is that they believe they are the ones kind of behind the scenes pulling all those levers, pushing them? Well, so, yeah. So, so what I'm, what I'm, what I've heard multiple times 
in 2020 is that crisis management and being the front-facing part of the response is not my responsibility. My job is to get the planning done and get it up in front. So, like, why would I need soft skills at this point if I'm just if I'm underneath the curtain, you know, working? So we are, of course, talking about soft skills of the business continuity professionals, but I'm talking way everybody, anyone who has to respond. And I don't mean first responders. I mean, Sally in accounting who has to figure out how to get accounts receivables up and running from her home in two days. Every person that's involved in responding, in continuing the services that they offer, they have to have the soft skills. And again, you don't like soft skills, great. They need to have empathy. They need to have active listening. And they need to have design thinking. And they need to have some innovation and creativity. Those are the my top four. Um, and so, yeah, this isn't about, so regardless of whether the business continuity person is right there in the command center, helping to make the decisions or at home because they did their job and now it's just, everyone's going to go run with it either way, either way, the important thing is to make sure that the people who are responding have the skills that they need. The so let's pull it back to business continuity though. I mean, like, are you suggesting then that our responsibility is to going forward, the future state that our responsibility would be to improve the soft skills and not just only ourselves, but the entire organization. Yeah. And then that's going to be a huge game changer, but that's what the research, the evidence, the empirical risk, this is what we know to be true, right? We don't like that. Um, and again, if we want to draw an analogy with project management, right? For the first 10 years coming out of the aerospace industry, project management had inputs and outputs and things, and you do this, and here's a deliverable, and here's a sequence. But what they found is, look, if you don't have the soft skills to make mm -hmm. that happen, you're in trouble. So yes, what we're seeing is there ought to be a role, and it's going to be very uncomfortable. But if you want your organization to have better chance of continuing its services, they need soft skills. Well, Shane, you said something, uh, and I think it's a mentality that's really dangerous in our profession about someone said, well, I wrote the plan. So during an event, I just stay home. And if you want to kill your career, I think that's the best way to do it. Because think about during a disaster, during an incident, during COVID, senior management is looking around at who's involved, who's matters, who's helping make decisions. and if you're back in a back closet locked in in the dark during that time, you're not going to be thought of as one of those people who has influence in an organization. And I think that's why people, some people in our profession have been pushed aside by choice this year. And I think that's really dangerous as organizations look, you know, who's creating value? What's the ROI of the five people? Who are the people I have to keep? You, you know, I would think you'd want to be on right. that list. All this, I think, is a consequence of two things, our compliance-driven perspective of business continuity, where we think that we're just auditors and, and compliance and governance professionals, and we're mandating you do X, Y, and Z. I think this is also a consequence of our just our emphasis on plans and plan documents, right? So in many organizations, people do just think of themselves as, I'm a plan writer. If that's what you think of yourself, then good luck. You're not going to do. You're not going to make any headway in actually building response capability. And and I think so. To, to James' point, right? If we think of ourselves as the owners of the plans, and then we just hand those off to other people to execute, we have it all wrong. 
what we need to be doing is providing support to other organizations, not just to build their plans, but for them to kind of understand, take ownership for, take responsibility for the improvement of their capabilities. I'm fine being kind of behind the scenes and maybe even being a bit of a facilitator. I don't look at myself as a, as a decision maker when it comes time for a disaster. I'm simply bringing the right people in and letting them make the decisions. But really my job is to give them the skills, to give them the understanding, to give them the awareness and the data they need to make informed decisions for themselves. And a consequence of that, right, is that they are going to be basically better prepared. They will put the appropriate level of thought into this. They will have made the right decisions around where they need to improve, whether it's soft skills, whether it is procedures, whether it's resources. Um, and as a consequence, they are better prepared and they're in a better position when those events and those disruptions. So let's do talk it. a little bit about planning. Like you, you brought up that topic. So in the future state, you know, taking some of what we've learned now and, and moving forward, you know, what would be the planning capability that we're trying to achieve? I mean, it's not governance. I know we, we, we've, uh, we've already talked about the fact that just simply having a checklist based or a check the box type of plan is not helpful, but what would be the capability that we would want to see in our planning efforts going forward? Well, it's, it's those capabilities which come together that make a department more able to continue its businesses, its services following a disaster. And so, and this is where it gets, you know, this is where it gets interesting and where it gets tricky. And it's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy, which is, look, the kinds of capabilities I need to build in a top-down um, steam generation plant is going to be different than a child care center or a hotel or a teaching facility or right or manufacturing or military so whatever those things are and this is again where it gets a little messy and which is why we we like documents instead of the, the messiness here but in some or you know in some departments it's going to be um the ability to get their staff to be able to uh, make decisions and take action without immediate directions. With some, it's going to be just the raw resources. Like, hey, I don't have a laptop to go home. Like, that's the thing that I need. Or I need an I need an encrypted or check printing stock in another location. Uh, or it's you know just the the team doesn't have the fortitude to be able to act in a crisis because they're so downtrodden or the morale is so bad or whatever. Right. So you know the. Unfortunately, I imagine the English language uh, doesn't help us in this part where planning is so much associated with plans, right. which is so much associated with documents. And the, the, we need a different word here. Um, we we want to talk about capabilities. So what is the verb where I am increasing capabilities over time? We don't really have a good verb for that. It's It's preparing, but that makes it sound like we're building bunkers, and that's not good for any of us. So we, the language is sort of working against us here, but it would be helpful to find a new magical term uh, to talk about, you know, it, we're, what we're doing is improving capabilities. Um, and maybe we borrow some language from Six Sigma, um, where we talk, or Lean. What we're talking about is improving our efficiencies and our capabilities to respond to adverse and complex circumstances. And, you know, 
you know, this is something we haven't gotten into either, which is not only are we seeing an increase in the impacts of disasters and we need to prepare for major incidents, um, but we're seeing organizations just having to deal with the day-to-day -day massive complexity of what they do. And you have mergers and acquisitions and disruptive technologies and marketplace interruptions and all of these types of things. It would be nice to be able to dovetail that we're not we're not preparing people just for the smoking hole, just for the big disaster, just for COVID, but we're also getting them all ready for adverse and complex circumstances. And that doesn't have to be a disaster. That could be a merger and acquisition, a disruption, uh, senior leadership all getting uh, fired because of something, you know. So um, there's a lot more that we can talk about, but we've got to change this language. We've got to change our word. We're not planners, right? Get rid of that. We're, we're, we're capability improvers, um, whatever that language is. And again, it's sort of working against us. Yeah, Shane, I think a lot of, a lot of organizations and people in our profession, they, those plans mm. are the end game and they're not supposed to be, right? Like David said, the goal of our profession is, do you minimize disruption for your organization during any event, whether it's malware, brand erosion reputation, you, you know, your whole C team getting fired, merger and acquisition, smoking hole, regardless of what it is, are you helping increase the capabilities to minimize those disruptions? And for a lot of people, they just start and end with plans, which, you know, we all respect in regulated environments. Right now, you have to have those. There's value to plan and document, but it can't be, that's not supposed to be the end game. And I think that's where a lot of organizations where something like COVID really turned everyone on their head because you have this global pandemic, you have a one in a hundred year event that affects the globe. And if all you live and die by is your plans, I guarantee you didn't have global pandemic plan, right? And so that's where we've seen a lot of organizations choke is that that plan, that document, that RA, BIA, BCP, which has value in a lot of cases, that was the end of their journey. I'm going to disagree with James a little bit. I, I, th I think plans have limited value. I'm not a big fan of, of plans. I think, I think the value is perhaps in the planning process, um, but I think we, we place too much value in that end result. Um, I, David was searching for a term, maybe that term is preparedness, maybe it's readiness. Um, but yeah, I think I personally, I think we'd be so much better off if we just eliminated the term plan and the term planning from our collective lexicon. Let's stop thinking about plans and plans. And then back to your original question, Shane, because I think your question was around if, if we're not planners, if we're not responsible necessary for building the capability of the organization, yeah. what is our responsibility? What right. should we be doing? And here, here's how I see what we should be thinking about, what we should be responsible for and how we should be thinking about our profession. And that's this, we should be collecting data and we should be able to, to analyze and report that data to give leaders and managers the information they need to make informed decisions about improving their recovery capability. And that's, honestly, that's that's it. Now there's lots of skills involved in how you report that data. We also should be supporting organizations when they make those decisions. Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna obtain some resources or we're gonna improve some competencies here. Do we necessarily need to be experts in training and building soft skills? 
I don't know. That's that's maybe a question for a future for a future super podcast. But maybe we need to be able to pull in the resources that have that level of expertise. So we should be supporting organizations when they make those decisions. But ultimately, our primary focus should be being able to collect data, collect data in the right way, and then report it in in a way that it's it's very transparent. It's very easy for leaders to understand, so they can make the decisions about where they're going to make improvements, how are they going to make those improvements, and then how they're going to measure that improvement over time. But insightful data, right? Yeah. Mark, yeah. I think that's a lot right of, data. you know, during a disaster, if I tell Shane, the CEO, hey, 38% of our departments have updated their plans in the last year. <laughs> Yay! That doesn't, allow, <laughs> that doesn't allow management to make decisions. So exactly. I love, you know, your thought about we need to, to gather data, we need to share data, but we need to be sharing more relevant and insightful yeah, data. I think the, the data is important. I think also another, from a capability wise, I, I feel like there needs to be the ability for a department, for example, to be empowered to make decisions and understand how they make decisions, right? Within the context of a... Uh, a giant disaster, you know, we cannot expect a plan to dictate every single step for a unique situation. But, you know, having these operational leaders be able to to take the uh, steps necessary that they feel is necessary to succeed, you know, that I think is really where a lot of these plans fail because they, they get so prescriptive that they that people can't operate outside that box. Well, and they also don't mirror how people act in a disaster, right? So the two biggest misses I see when we look at plans is they're not actionable. They don't they don't they don't relate to how people actually act in a disaster. And then going back to David's soft skills, they don't match the culture of the company. So I was working with one organization, they're very touchy-feely, they're very collaborative, everything's by consensus right? That's how they run day to day. That works for them. That's awesome. And then all their documents are based on ICS <laughs> where, so you're going to tell me that's not going to work 360 <laughs> days of the year, the five of us get together and decide yeah. the direction yeah. of the department. And then five days a year, Mark comes in and says, I'm the incident commander. Do what I say. It doesn't work. And I think there's a huge miss there where does your framework, philosophy, plan, document, whatever, does it match your company's, your organization's culture? Right. I work with some companies, they're defense contractors, they're a ton of former military, ton of former law enforcement. They love ICS. God bless you guys. Use ICS, have your top down, you know, one up, one down. It fits their style. But if that's not how you lead and manage day to day, why does your document now say Shane is the incident commander and Mark is the recorder and James is the procurement? Like that rigidity, it's it feels foreign. And I think that's a lot of reasons why companies just take plans and say, this isn't us during and this isn't how we're going to operate. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, we've been thinking a lot more about, OK, w what we need are the the, the guiding principles uh, the the rules of engagement. There's all sorts of words, but you know, you mentioned military, and you know, think about military or sports or aerospace or you know, the, if I have a group of people that go that have to go and achieve an objective under 
the unknown unknown circumstances and adverse conditions and complexity, I don't write a long list of here's how you're going to do that because they're not going to know. Yeah. What you set out are the parameters, right? Like here's your big objectives. Here's your big missions. Here's some things you can't do. And then, you know, and scope, let those be the guide rails and set those guide rails, but then let them go within the guide rails to make the decisions, take the actions, and be innovative and creative and respond to the situation because they're going to be the eyes on the ground, the boots on the ground, and they're going to be the one who are going to have to make it happen. Uh, and that's what we do with military. Now, we, we train them, right? Okay, let's think about what happens if we lose the building? What happens if we lose people? What happens if we lose our supply chain resources? Good. Let's think about those. Let's explore those. But that doesn't end up being a punch list of here is how we're going to respond. Right. It's it, And do they have the resources, right? Do they have the equipment they need to be able to do these types of things? So as we look at the these capabilities, right, we got the resources, we have the procedures, we have the crisis competencies, uh, and we have these, these guide rails, these guiding principles, rules of engagement, which set them on the right track to do what we want them to do. And then leadership can feel a bit more comfortable in empowering them because you're not allowed to go do anything right. and spend all my money and make any kinds of decisions. But within these tight parameters, yes, we want you to because there's no way that the C-suite can call every single person that, that needs to do something and tell them how they wanted to do it. Even if they wanted to, they can't do it. Yeah. So it, James made an excellent observation, right? Which is, which is, you can't expect a framework that works in one organization to be implemented in another organization for it to function the same way. And this is again, where we need to really change how we think about business continuity. Cause I think we think, we believe that we're the experts. We can develop some kind of framework or some kind of process that as, as James already alluded to, we train people on once a year. And yet nine months after that training took place, we expect everybody to, to remember that training, that one hour training session that took place in the middle of a Wednesday back in July and be able to follow it succinctly. And I think that's, I personally think that's ridiculous. What we need to do is understand, well, what's, what's instinctive for leaders and managers in the frontline employee? What would they intuitively do if they experience, they came to work in the morning and they experienced some kind of disaster? And then we need to say, okay, if that's what everybody's normally going to do, how can we improve that? And again, rather than saying, okay, we're going to put in this whole new structure that's going to make it all better. We need to say, you know what? That's not going to be intuitive to people. We need to start with where they are and then make small tweaks along the way and reinforce that with practice. Maybe reinforce that with actual events. So David already talked about, you know, we shouldn't be planning for the smoking hole in the ground. We should be Business continuity has all sorts of value it can deliver when there's a power outage or when there's some kind of uh, some kind of strike to our public trans transit system and people can't get into work. Maybe it's a network or application outage. If we provide more opportunities for us to execute against this, more practice opportunities, more learning opportunities, more opportunities to reinforce maybe the small changes we've made along the way. And then the other key component is what you mentioned at the start of this question, Shane, which was empowerment. Again, we, we sometimes set this expectation that either we as business continuity professionals are going to come in with all of the answers and all the information, or all of the answers and information are going to be in a documented plan. And instead, we need to reinforce the, the message that, you know, as a, as a manager of your department or as a leader or as a, a supervisor or a team lead, 
you're responsible for making those decisions. And yes, if we need to actually delegate or explicitly authorize some level of, of authority or responsibility, let's do that so that people are empowered and they have the responsibility and it's clear to everybody that, yeah, if they don't have communications and this happens, they are free to do what they need to do. And so this gets us all the way back around to, to, to James's and Shane's first point about governance and the question of, well, what does governance really want business continuity to do? And, you know, um, one of the Heath brothers, I can't remember which one, um, uh, they wrote uh, Decisive and uh, Switch and some of the others. They just published a book called Upstream. And one of the things that they talk about is most systems are engineered and probably not purposefully to generate the outcomes that they are generating. Right? And what we have is a system in place for a host of reasons that incentivizes documentations and plans and deliverables. And what we've got to do is somehow, and I'm not saying, and probably at many points along the stream, right? We're down here saying, well, you don't need this document or that document. And we've got to get back at the upstream and along all the points of the stream and try and change the incentives, try and change the mindset, try and change the purpose of what business continuity is. Because if you walked into the C-suite today and said, look, you probably need to spend 25 to 33% of your business continuity working on soft skills, that's not gonna go over. But the point is, well, it only doesn't go over if our job is to create plans. If our job is to continuously improve capabilities, mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense then. Yeah, and David, I think that's a lot easier to do in non-regulated environments. Right. So what I see, you know, working with different companies, financial services companies spend the most money on BC because they're the most heavily regulated and they're the ones who have the most paper. But I work with other other companies that are, aren't regulated. They're doing this to minimize disruption to the business truly. Like, how do we reduce losing revenue? And we had a client who we did come in because they had a head of business continuity who was very smart new BC, had no soft skills, wasn't a culture fit. So we helped them work on that aspect. And that company, you know, gave the luxury and had the opportunity to do that because they did not have auditors or regulators breathing down their neck. They were just looking at how do we minimize disruption and what are the obstacles to I that? totally agree. But this gets to the point of trying to work upstream, which is we've got to get to the auditors and the regulators and the compliance people and the standards writers and say, look, if business continuity is really about enabling and you, is it capabilities? Is it this? Is it that? Whatever. Enabling businesses to recover from disaster, to continue their services under adverse conditions, we ought to be doing some different things. And that means that the auditors and regulars ought to be looking for evidence of those different things. And so, yeah, right now, um, you got to do the compliance because you got to. Um, but can we, A, change the minds of the compliance and the auditors and the, and the leaders? I mean, and two, if, you know, if the, the leaders push back, if the C-suite push back enough and says, look, I guess I'll do this compliance thing if you want me to, but I'm way more interested in keeping my shareholders, my stockholders, my board members um, in the green, then we're going to do some different things. We have to. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I really think what you're going to see as a result of this year is there's going to be a lot more regulations around BC because this is how the market works, right? After WorldCom and Enron, you had Sarbanes-Oxley come in. If we all we all remember what happened when that went live and how that disrupted business and did that mitigate fraud or risk for shareholders? It didn't really. After Superstorm Standy, you saw a lot of the federal, you know, apparatus OCC and all these things put in all these requirements for the the firms that got hosed in New York City. Did that mitigate risk? I don't think it did. And I think you're going to see a lot more, you know, now people are like, "Why didn't we see this coming and the natural reaction unfortunately is more more regulation and now's the time to make sure that it's effective regulation and not just more i mean the company i worked for in in the early 2000s when we went through sarbanes oxley and we spent 20,000 hours becoming compliant with that regulation did that make one shareholder safer i don't think it did so, and I worry about seeing that in our industry of the Sarbanes-Oxley of risk coming down the pipeline for all the companies that took it on the chin this year. And, we get, and so now we get to the absolute deepest level, which is, you know, what is the meaning of business continuity? What is it supposed to do? What is, how is it supposed to serve? What is the value it's supposed to provide? Um, and until we can properly answer that question, uh, in a way that's going to drive change, we may not get to that change. If business continuity is about creating documents and we didn't have in business continuity didn't help us during COVID, well, there's there's only two answers to that problem. Either they need to produce more documents because we didn't have enough <laughs> or they need to do more of what they've been it's doing. not enough paper for this. There you go. We need we need more that's paper. The, that's a takeaway message from this episode, everyone, is that we need more paper. More paper. This this podcast brought to you by the good folks at Staples. <laughs> right. Yeah. And the <laughs> lumber industry. <laughs> David raised at the very like the important part, which is we need to change business continuity's value proposition. I think for too long, business continuity has been predicated on this belief that it is needed for organizational survivability that without business and we see this in the scare tactics and the myths that exist within business continuity that if you don't have a business continuity plan your organization is going to die as a result of some kind of disaster that may befall it i, I work for brinks brinks has been around for 160 years i've only been around for the past seven if they needed a business continuity plan to survive they would have gone under long before now we need to think of business continuity really as a reduction in pain when disasters and disruptions occur. That's where our value proposition lies, is, is not ensuring the organization can survive another day when something happens. It's, it's when that disruption happens, it's making it less costly. It's making it, make, making it so the organization doesn't lose customers. Maybe they can actually pick up market share. Maybe they're in a better position to provide improved or changed services and products. That's where we need to work. And if we look at it that way, I think we're in a better position both to practice our improvement and better measure our capabilities. We can actually better measure business continuity's value, right? Because we can, or we can, we can measure organizations that all suffer a disruption and see, oh, well, did they lose market share? Did they lose customers? Did they, did they decrease revenue as a result? And what did their, what did their preparedness and their readiness look like 
prior to that event. And now we can start comparing and contrasting organizations and their relative experience following those events and, and come up with really what are the solutions that provide the best results. So let's let's end on this this topic right here. So you've brought up a, a, a variety of improvements to the industry. You know, how does that translate into action? Okay, because it's great for us forward to feel like, hey, this is this is good. We'll implement it in our programs. But I feel like it, it has to be that the industry itself or the industry bodies have to come along for this ride, for this to change. Is that a realistic possibility? Now, everybody could, tread, could tread lightly that. here. <laughs> so you're could starting with a, a nice uh, light topic. Yeah, now we go with the, end, um, with the light one. I think you have seen some some recognition. Like, So I know David is a BCI fanboy. <laughs> Uh, loves BCI, um, but you know, objectively, look at they have recognized over the last two years they had their path to their different levels, right? CBCI, MBCI, FBCI, and then they realized there there's not enough there, and so they came out with recently, and I really like this. The competency framework has much more texture and color outside of just block and tackling in the profession. It incorporates leadership aspects, management aspects, understanding the business. And so I think you are starting to see some organizations at that level recognize that, hey, maybe trying to be like the accounting function where you just have this standard rigid across all industries is is not working. And that's the biggest miss I see, like I told you guys earlier, is that you were a business continuity professional in a hospital, and now you're a business continuity professional at a retail company, and you're trying to do the exact <clears throat> same things. And it goes back to what Mark said, what is that organization's pain points, right? And you build your program <clears throat> around that. And that's that's what I would recommend companies do. And that's that's what I do the first thing when I sit down with a company. I'm trying to find what are your pain points why am I in the room with you? And the answer, I don't know what the answer is yet. I don't come in with a preconceived notion of what the answer is because I don't even know what the question is. But I think you are starting to see, I really thought, like I said, the BCI competency framework is for a legacy professional body, kind of radical for them to come out with things that have some context. And I think you're seeing more organizations recognize right? Do you solve any function in in the business? Do you solve a problem for management? Right? Yes or no? And we need to answer that question. We need to even know what that question is. So so going back to the, the idea of how the industry itself can influence this or be involved in these types of changes, I mean... There's no, there's no incentive. I'm sorry. I, so I, I agree with James that the BCI is going in the right direction. And then, you know, Kudos to them for finally catching up to what Dave and I have been saying for years. Um, but when I look at the research that they continue to provide to the industry, um, it's how do they collect that data? It's from business continuity professionals. Oh, and by the way, the vast majority of it comes from professionals they've certified in the good practice guidelines. Well, they take that data and they regurgitate it back to the business continuity profession. That's not going to result in change. The change is going to 
And this is, it's interesting that you bring, we end with this question, because this is the question that we started with, right? Which is, what's the change going to look like? Where's it going to come from? And the change cannot, it's not going to come from within the business economy profession. It's going to have to be driven from outside of it. It's going to be, it's going to be CEOs. It's going to be leaders of organizations. It's going to be people maybe in related disciplines like emergency management and maybe risk management where we're seeing changes as well. There's no incentive for the leaders within business continuity to change because they've been promoting one approach to business continuity for the past 20 plus years. Is there any incentive for them to turn around and say, you know, we, we got it wrong. We're going to change direction. Of course not. They're, they're going to make small tweaks to what they, what they recommend. And that's going to be it. If we're going to make substantial change, it's not going to be within business continuity. David, what do you think? You've been very noticeably quiet. If I knew the answer, I'd be out there doing it. I think I agree with with all the things that we have all said this entire conversation. The the system is created to to produce the outputs that it has been producing, and the incentives for you know look the the, the incentives to create documentation, the incentives to to do the regulation, the incentive they're all baked in right now. So you know again I go back to James's bus. I, you know, I think the bus is coming. It's going to run over everybody. And and what's going to happen, right? We're going to move towards um, resilience. Ah, that sounds a lot more interesting than business continuity or disaster recovery. Who doesn't want to be resilient? That's proactive. That's wonderful. You know, unfortunately, no one on the planet knows what resilience actually looks like. And now we're back to the data, right? We don't have the data that shows us what makes a, co a company, and, and we've, we've seen research on the fact that there isn't research on this. So I think that's a set point. We don't know what resilience is, and that's going to move us away from business continuity also. It's going to get us into a, a whole bunch of an interdiscipline of, of, of different kinds of related disciplines. I don't know where the change is going to come from. Um, I, if COVID wasn't enough to, to really shake up the industry, I'm not sure what that's going to take. Uh, and I worry that the leaders are going to say, well, you know, I'm going to invest in risk management and change management and cybersecurity and the things that I know uh, are delivering value. And, you know, business continuity can can go do the regulations and, and I'll move on. I don't know. I don't know where the change is. Well, you've left us on quite a sad note, I believe. <laughs> I'm going back to bed yeah. now. I can oh, change that. I can change that. We can all just go back to bed. <laughs> because Shane said that for today's thing, he was going to actually maybe try and record us uh, uh, visually as well. And he said, I had to dress up. And if possible, I should wear a monocle. <laughs> so I will say, Shane. That oh, there you go. I, I, I do enjoy it. I want to be able to. Uh, to, to, to Thank you. We now have yeah. Mr. Peanut on the I episode. have to squint a little bit, but uh, perhaps this will lend some credibility to your podcast. All right, that's now. the oh, screenshot I'm using. I'm going to use that as yeah, a screenshot. Thank you all very much. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank yes. you well, for uh, joining me today. I think we probably pull back layer one of the onion that uh, will require a continued analysis and thought, but it's been helpful to have this discussion together because I think these types of discussions are really necessary uh, and, and, and need to be visible because I think there may be other people who are feeling similar thoughts. Um, I know we're in a situation where we the unknown is, is still quite a bit, bit big and uh, you know, we're seeing some of the ramifications of change 
or the need for change being become more apparent. Uh, but again, I think we're still in that stage where I'm not sure what the next uh, few months will hold for the industry in particular. Uh, but I'm hopeful. Thank you to the three of you for joining us. And, uh, and I hope we can have another conversation like this soon. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for hosting us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for joining us this week on the Failover Plan podcast. You can find out more about our guests by visiting our website, failoverpodcast.com. There you'll find several links that will help you get a hold of them if you have any questions or if you want to tell them they're way off. This week, send us the name of a BC professional you'd like to hear from on a future roundtable, and we'll see if we can make it happen. Thanks again for listening, and remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way.